Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 54 of the Essential X-Lapsed, where we're still in the midst of welcoming Magneto back to, uh, you know, Earth. <laughs> and so our sidebar into uh, a three-part Avenger story continues. Let's hop right in. This is Avengers number 48, which had a, jo- uh, sorry, a January 1968 cover date. The story is called The Black Knight Lives Again, written by Roy Thomas with art by George Tuska. Letters Artie Simic, colors by somebody. Edit Stanley, cover price 12 cents. And uh, we pick up pretty much right where we left off last issue. We got Magneto verbally berating his ki- um, former cohorts in Evil Mutantum, while the Toad giddily bounces around the foreground, suggesting that old Eric just, you know, kill the Maximoffs. They've got no value, just kill him. Kill him, they're traitors, kill him. Uh, Quicksilver then does the Valiant thing uh, and tells Magneto to just, you know, do your worst. You'll never break us, and the Avengers will eventually show up and defeat him. And Magneto just about reads my mind here when he says how tired he is of hearing the word Avengers. (laughs) And, uh, I mean, we could talk about that as a current year thing. We could talk about that as a entirety of the 2010s thing, or... Like I mentioned last episode, the last half dozen or so pages of that issue had the word Avengers in damn near every single word balloon. Now Magneto decides to let the good guys know he's not messing around by putting on like a body power exhibition. (laughs) I mean, he's like, check out what I can do. And he uses his magnetic powers to blast a suit of armor to bits. I'm not sure how that's more impressive than what he usually can do. He then uses his gloved fist to karate chop through a very convenient nearby slat of wood. Now at this point, Pietro is just tired of hearing Magneto Magnetoing, and speaking, of course. And so, he says, you know what, we'll consider your offer to put the Brotherhood Band back together. Magneto then, stupidly, uh, leaves the room so the bro and sis can uh, confer and discuss this in private. What a, what a dumb thing to do. Uh, Wanda is confused, which... I mean, in fairness, is like 90% of her characterization, even in the best of times. And she wonders what might have gotten into her dear brother's head. Well, it turns out it was all a ruse, because once Mags is out of earshot, Pietro wriggles his right hand free from his bindings and smuggles, get this, a like a full-size microphone out of his pants to make a desperate SOS call into the Avengers. Unfortunately for him, however, the Toad just so happened to be bouncing by when he made the call. Old Morty refers to them both as human lovers and vows to snitch on them to his master. The scene shifts and we're dropped back at Avengers Mansion, where Jarvis is just about to call it a day. A little confusing, I thought Jarvis lived at the mansion. Like, I mean, who's going to take care of the place at night? But uh, here he's actually getting ready to go home from the mansion. Anyway, he hears the SOS signal coming in, but he is sure that the Maximoffs are on duty and figures whatever it is, they ought to be able to handle it. So, uh, whoops. Uh, next, we head outside to watch Hawkeye jump from building to building while he malazes over the fact that Captain America left the team last issue. Starting to think that old Clint's got a bit of an unhealthy obsession with Cap. Um, he even ignores a bunch of autograph hounds so he can stand there and brood. He's also a little bit upset about Natasha, but, uh, yeah, what are you gonna do? Uh, back to the mansion, where Jarvis finally relents and answers the damn phone. He gets Pietro's SOS, but... But unfortunately, it cuts off before Pietro can report exactly where they are. Jarvis says he'll contact the other Avengers. I think he says this to dead air, because Pietro's already gone. But, I mean, he's going to let them know for whatever help they might do. You know, they don't know where they're at, but we'll get there. We'll get there. 
Uh, next, we check in with the Pim Van Dynes during their uh, fabulous Las Vegas vacation. Now, Jan is all huffy at the roulette wheel because some scumbag is on a winning streak. Hank approaches her to tell her about the Jarvis call, but uh, decides that they ought to teach this roulette wizard a lesson before, you know, saving the lives of their teammates. Hank has, a, has an ant climb into the cheater's pocket where it finds a magnetic device that somehow controls the roulette wheel. Hank tinies himself down and, along with several dozen ants, proceeds to walk all over the table. Like, I don't know, I'm not much of a gambler. But I'm guessing if you are at a roulette wheel, you're probably focused on the wheel, right? You're looking at it, you're watching it, you, you're holding your breath, hoping that your number or color comes up. But here we have Hank and many, many ants walking across the table. Is nobody watching this? I mean, Hank even picks up the friggin' roulette ball. And nobody calls foul on this? Anyway, Hank chats up the ants who uh, are in the pocket still, and they yoink the device out of the, cheater's, uh, out of the cheater's pants. And by golly, he loses the next round. So, uh, boy, that was satisfying, was it not? Uh, okay, finally, Jan and Hank decide it's time to head back to the mansion and answer the SOS call. Next stop, Olympus, where uh, Hercules is stomping around the deserted place, calling out to whoever's responsible for, you know, the place being deserted. Again, like I said last episode, hopefully we will be long out of this book before this story takes over as the main focus, because I don't give a crap about Olympus. Now back to Avengers Mansion, where Hawkeye, Pym, and the Wasp listen to the playback of Pietro's SOS call, probably several dozen times, so that they can go on to argue about how they ought to proceed. Now, Hank is shocked that Magneto's involved, and says that, you know, hey, he's an X-Men guy. We can't even use him in the movies. He's an X-Men guy. And Jan says, hey, the X-Men lost their monopoly on Magneto, and then whispers, just wait till we get our hands on the Phoenix. Another scene shift. Back to Garrett Castle, where Dr. Dane Whitman is broken out of the dungeon via one of the joint's many secret passages. And he decides not to spring Norris out, though, which is probably for the best, and I'm sure Norris probably, he's probably still there today. Anyway, Dane gets back to his lab, so he can flash back to his uncle's final fight with Iron Man once again. You know, just like we saw last issue, Iron Man and, the, and Uncle Black Knight fell from a great height. Now, we were told that Black Knight died on impact, but that's not the entire story. It's not entirely true. You see, Garrett was able to drag himself away to a deserted farmhouse which luckily had a working phone, with which he called Dr. Dane Whitman at the Willowton Research Center. So, um, I guess he had that number in his memory. Falling from several, you know, hundred feet didn't jolt his mind. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. Uh, From here, we see Dane carrying his evil uncle back to his castle where Garrett says his final words. He begs Dane to use his intellect for good. He regrets his own decisions to become a bad guy. Dane vows that he will take the mantle of Black Knight and he will use it to make the world a better place. Then we jump to a two-panel training montage where Dane gets used to riding a flying horse and has remodeled the Black Knight helmet and armor. This brings us into the present where Dane's done donned the new-look Black Knight costume and he heads toward New York City to alert the Avengers. Back to the bad guy. We got Magneto who is repeatedly punching his son, um, Pietro, in the face for daring to lie to him. Wanda tells him that it doesn't matter what Magneto does, they will never, ever rejoin him. Huh. Okay, to which Toad suggests that, hey, if they're not willing to play ball, you may as well just kill them. Just kill them. Kill the human lovers. 
And so Magneto then punts poor Mortimer across the room. It's a pretty funny panel. He then uses his powers to raise the Maximoff's platform out of the castle and into a newly constructed supersonic cruiser that he built. Ay ay ay. Okay. Head back to the mansion here, where the Avengers are kind of just standing there with their thumbs in their bums. Um, lucky for them, Jarvis is looking out the window, probably bored by this entire thing. Anyway, Jarvis reports that a strange black-clad man on a horse is flying toward them. Now, since the last time they saw him, the Black Knight was a villain, the Avengers immediately go on the attack. Which leads to several pages, probably too many pages, of miscommunication and accidental reflex-based attacks from the inexperienced Dr. Whitman. The whole thing's a bit of a mess. It really, really is. But it really underscores just how scattered the Avengers are without the guidance and leadership of Captain America. I'm not sure if that's the intended takeaway here, but it's what I'm coming away with. Now, this cluster of a scene wraps up with Goliath saving a bunch of civilians from a falling chunk of building, and then plummeting from another building, but shrinking back to normal in time for the Black Knight to swoop in for the save. The Avengers all hang their heads in shame and apologize for misjudging this new-look Black Knight. And so, Dane figures, cool, we're all pals now, and he vows that together they'll rescue Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. Well, not so fast, Kimosabi, because the Avengers might not absolutely hate your guts at the moment, but they also don't know you from a hole in the wall. They tell our new hero that, uh, well, they just don't trust him yet. Then they send him on his merry Marvel way. As he leaves the scene, Jan is certain that he's probably a cutie under his tin bucket helmet. And, uh, well, that's that. Next episode, we wrap up this go-round with the Master of Magnetism in Avengers number 49. So as with last episode, let's see what we can wring out of this here. Um, Not a whole heck of a lot, at least not, you know, pertaining to the scope of this program here. Magneto, uh, Scarlet Witch, and Quicksilver get uh, relatively little time here compared to last episode. Um, I'm not sure how this one's going to wrap up. Like I said uh, last episode, I don't know that I've ever read this before, so I suppose we will see. Um... What we did get a Magneto, I did enjoy, but uh, this was definitely more of an Avengers issue just in and of itself with, uh, you know, Magneto looming elsewhere, kind of. Uh, this was more of an introduction to the Black Knight than anything, I figure. Though, as I mentioned in the synopsis, I definitely appreciate the way uh, the Avengers were depicted as being kind of directionless without Captain America, right? How ineffective they were. Uh, They majorly foul up this run-in with the Black Knight. They endanger a whole bunch of civilians here by reacting. You know, they were reacting to this guy who they didn't know from a hole in the wall. They just thought they recognized the armor, thought they recognized him as a threat, and they went on the offensive immediately. Which, you know, seems like something Captain America might have cautioned them on. You know, maybe get some more information before you endanger the entire city by... Engaging in a battle in the skies above dozens, if not hundreds, of civilians. The heroes really were like, you know, herded cats here. They weren't communicating with each other. They were just bouncing all over the place. And uh, they were acting foolishly to begin with. So, I don't know, like I said during the synopsis, I don't know if that was supposed to be the takeaway here. But it definitely was my takeaway here. Now, something that really jumped out at me that I wasn't expecting... um, we know Roy Thomas is a big fan of, you know, the old Justice Society stories from the 40s, the, uh, the All-Star comics. That was kind of his, uh, his deal, right? I wasn't prepared for how corny the dialogue was going to be 
in these uh I, I mentioned this last episode with like Wanda saying like we shall not, you know, break our vow to the Avengers, to the mighty Avengers. It's like who talks like that? Here we get even more of that, especially like the interpersonals. Hawkeye constantly refers to Goliath as Man Mountain. It's like, oh that's a good point, Man Mountain. Just sounds so bad. Uh instead of calling Hercules Hercules, they go, I wonder what the Prince of Power is up to. It's like huh? And then, like, perhaps corniest of all, we have Goliath calling Hawkeye Bowslinger. Like, we got Goliath saying, you know, not so fast, Bowslinger. It's like, it's it's quicker to say Hawkeye. It's easier to say Hawkeye. It's less dorky to say Hawkeye. Bowslinger? I, I, it's so weird how Roy Thomas is writing both Avengers and X-Men at this point, and X-Men doesn't feel nearly as corny. Of course, it's got, like, that... You know, Bob Haney-ish uh, faux hip talk where, like, Angel's calling the t- his teammates agents. Like, greetings, agents. You know, th- that kind of silly stuff. But I find that to be a little bit more um, palatable than having the characters refer to each other by, like, these weird pet names. It just, eh, feels kind of weird to me. Overall, uh, probably not much more to say. Uh, it was a decent enough issue. Uh, certainly not my favorite. Um, definitely enjoying... Odd, odd as it is to say, I'm enjoying the X-Men stuff better than the Avengers stuff, even though I have been uh, a little unkind to this era of X-Men stuff as well. But uh, that's where we'll leave that portion of the show. Let's hop into some more Roy Thomas recollections here. I, I mentioned over the past couple of episodes that I've been digging up some old interviews uh, with Roy discussing his time on the X-Men, and today... We're going to cover part of an essay written by Roy Thomas from Alter Ego number 24. It's covered dated May 2003, and it's part of a compilation of essays entitled The Men Called X. This is part two, I'm Proud of Both My Runs on the X-Men, an essay by Roy Thomas. And today we're going to talk about mostly, or most of, his first year on the book here. He goes issue by issue, giving some recollections, some thoughts, some takeaways. So let's start with... Uh, Well, just about the start. Roy says, The first sour note for me on X-Men came with my second issue, issue 21. I learned that, for reasons never made clear, Stan had told the artist that he, Werner Roth, would be plotting the upcoming issues, and I would be simply writing dialogue and captions for them. Now understand, in those days, Werner wouldn't have made one extra cent if he had plotted all stories with no input from me. I would have still received my full script rate, then probably ten bucks a page. But I felt that I, not Werner, should be plotting the stories. I said so to Stan and prevailed. Though I'm not sure how much I contributed to the plot of number 20, from whence comes dot 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 Dominus, or how much of that was Werner's or indirectly Stan's. Well, just like the DeFalco interview with Thomas last episode, uh, the the, the onus on stories that weren't all that great always go to Stan. It's like, uh, maybe that was Stan, and... I mean, I guess Stan's as good a scapegoat as any because that Dominus story kind of sucked. And lucky for Roy, Stan is both uh, too nice and too forgetful to, to know who did what anyway. Roy continues, The first issue on which I'm sure I gave Warner a synopsis, at least two single-space type pages, probably more, was number 22, July 66, entitled Divided We Fall. I believe it was Stan's idea for Count Nefaria to form a group of supervillains. That fit in nicely with my own predilections, reminding me of the Injustice Society in the 1940s issues of All-Star Comics. 
Indeed, one influence on my plot, set as it was in Washington, D.C., was the Dr. Midnight chapter of All-Star number 37, October-November 1947 cover, in which Per Degaton conquers the nation's, quote, capital city. For number 24, I thought up my first X-Men supervillain, The Locust. I think this non-mutant master of the insect world was a reasonable success, well-designed visually by Werner. He did a good job on bugs, too, both big and uh, both small and gigantic. As I said in the 2001 introduction to a handsome, full-color Marvel Masterworks version of X-Men number 22 through 31, quote, I even gave the Locust the name Dr. Hopper. I had no shame, unquote. Werner and I were also getting the range on their private lives, as per the pages in which Marvel Girl leaves the professor's school for what she thinks will be forever. Pithy and passionate thought balloons abound, and while there are, again, a few too many of them, I think they fit well in the fabric of what was then the Marvel Universe. And that's something we definitely talked about here. It was kind of the first case of uh, the soap opera elements coming into the X-Books here, which, you know, as uh, fans of our vintage here, uh, we know all about. We know all about the soap operatic elements in X-Men, and uh, that's one of the things that many of us uh, most identify with the X-Men and most love about the X-Men. So... Having that bit happen uh, during the Roy Thomas run was uh, was pretty cool to see. It was pretty cool to kind of have an analytical <laughs> view of here. The weird love triangle between Gene, Angel, and Scott, and having Scott blast at Angel accidentally on purpose, and having Gene go to school and meet that creep. It's all really, really good stuff. And uh, yeah, that's probably, you know, in, in hindsight, might have been the strongest part of uh, Roy's first run. Let's get back to his own words here. In number 25 and 26, I utilized memories of my month-long drive around Mexico in 1964 with a lady friend, a Woodrow Wilson scholar, I'll have you know. I I don't know if that's supposed to be impressive. I don't know what that is. Um, He says this happened during his St. Louis days. El Tigre wasn't much of a villain, but he was only a lead-in to Kukulkan, who was an alternate mythological version of the Mesoamerican deity more commonly known as... Quetzalcoatl? 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 Um, It's like a bird, I think. Um, And the first time I ever saw that word was in Final Fantasy VIII, where uh, Rama or Ramu, the uh, lightning... um, Guardian Force, or <laughs> what would we call it, an Esper? Uh, whatever the, uh, you know, the magical being uh, representing lightning, Ramu, Rama, was replaced with Quetzalcoatl. And I, I couldn't pronounce it then, I can't pronounce it now, but hopefully you know what I'm talking about. Roy continues, With issue number 27, I brought in the Mimic, who was introduced by Stan and Warner in number 19. The idea of a guy who could draw powers from all five X-Men and was thus the equal of the entire group appealed to me. We were even allowed to use a Fantastic Four villain, the Puppet Master. We tossed in cameos of fellow mutants Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch on leave from the Avengers, and four panels featuring our friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. I had to get special permission from Stan to include Spidey. This may be the first time someone besides Stan wrote dialogue for the old wall crawler. I don't believe he changed any of my copy. And I tell you, it's funny reading this article, this essay written by Roy, right after reading the interview that was conducted by Tom DeFalco for the Comic Creators on X-Men book, because here Roy seems a whole lot more retroactively optimistic, or he just seems to remember his time on X-Men more fondly. It's less cynical, less kind of pithy, uh, which I kind of got... 
I mean, you can't read tone or inflection or sarcasm or anything like that. It's, you know, that's one of the problems with uh, written discourse and, you know, internet dialogue. Uh, But I got this weird impression that he was kind of down on his time with the X-Men during the DeFalco interview. Whereas here, he seems more proud. You know, it's it's odd. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe I'm projecting. I don't know. But uh, it's nice to see that he uh, he remembers his time on X-Men fondly and is excited about uh, the the landmarks and milestones that that he accomplished during this run. Now let's get to the last bit for this segment for today. He says, The second villain I dreamed up for the X-Men, along with the lackluster ogre in the same issue, number 28, was the Banshee. In Irish folklore, Banshees are female, and so should mine and Warners have been. But... Well, you can read all about that in the 2000 X-Men panel coming up later this issue, and we'll get to that later on down the line, probably another day. But we already know the answer. If you listened to last episode, you know that Stan didn't want the X-Men fighting a villainous. It's really just as easy as that. Um, Roy continues, Suffice it to say, Werner did a great job on the character, from the splash through the costuming and face and mannerisms. The story's been reprinted a few times, unlike, oddly, the Sunfire origin and I think it holds up reasonably well as the introduction of both the Banshee and Factor 3. And, uh, uh, Werner's Banshee was very, very ugly. I don't know what Roy's talking about. Maybe he was supposed to be ugly, but he was, I mean, he did not have a single alibi. (laughs) He was homely. But uh, that's where we're going to leave Roy's recollections for now. Uh, Next episode, we'll continue breaking down this essay, getting through Roy's year worth of Factor 3 stories, and, uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I'll try not to be quite as repetitive with the whole, uh, you know, man from uncle James Bond stuff. Hopefully we get more (laughs) than just that. But uh, I'm looking forward to that. I hope you are as well. And I hope uh, everyone out there finds this little bit to be probably not as fun or interesting as the letters, pages, or bullpen bulletins. But like I said last episode, I do not have the letters, pages for Avengers. And we already covered this month's bullpen bulletins. So... This is the little bit of extra that I can try to uh, to offer for these non-X-Men episodes. Uh, you know, I was going to include some Stan Lee stuff. Uh, there was a bit of a, of a Stan Lee interview in the Comic Creators on X-Men book, but unfortunately, uh, Mr. DeFalco is maybe taking a page out of the Wizard Magazine uh, playbook because all they talked about was the movies. And it's like, it's, I don't want to hear Stan talk about the X-Men movies. <laughs> I don't want to hear any of that. I want to hear about the motivations behind the characters he created. He and uh, he and Jack Kirby created in the first year. I don't. I really couldn't care less about why Stan couldn't appear in cameo form in one of the first three X Men movies. It's I'm just not interested. Not interested. But uh, that's where we'll put a pin in that. Uh, before we get into our closing segments here, we've got some breaking DCBS news here. As uh, if you've been following this channel, following these shows, you'll know that. Uh, my latest package from DCBS had zero current year X-Men books in it and uh, zero Spider-Man books in it. So that meant that both of our current year shows were forced into hiatus. And I mentioned that I've been in, you know, email correspondence with DCBS about, uh, you know, what are the next steps here? What are my guarantees? What am I not guaranteed? What do I need to do in order to make sure I don't miss things? And uh, what it basically came down to, and they were very polite about this. I understand that they're going through some stuff right now. And I definitely don't like it, and I feel like this pattern of behavior has been building for probably the past couple of years now. But uh, they told me that they couldn't guarantee me anything. You know, I asked, uh, you know, do I need to start buying the books that 
they may or may not send. And they came back to me, and I mean, it was fair of them to say, hey, yeah, go ahead and, you know, if you want to replace them, go ahead and replace them, and then let us know which books you got so we can refund you. I suppose they didn't have to do that, so it's nice that they would do that. And again, that's not ideal. It's certainly not ideal. It's not the way I want to do things. I don't want to have to drive around to shops and try to track down first printings of books with the non-variant cover and pay full price for them and then put miles on the car. I mean, it's it's a pain in the ass, especially when, you know, I already put the order in and I was exp- paid for it already and was expecting these books to, to show up with my, uh, with my bundle. But uh, I guess it is what it is. Uh, I will be heading out... Well, probably a couple of hours from the, the time of this recording to try and pick up all of the X and Spidey books from November that I missed. And uh, fingers crossed. And uh, to all my fellow DCBS travelers out there, I wish you guys the best of luck as well. And even though uh, by the end of today I probably will have many of the books that we need to cover, I'm still going to put current year X lapsed off a little bit. Uh, we're going to wrap up this week doing Essentials. Next week, we're going to do the second annual Merry X-Lapsed special episodes, and then we'll jump back into the current year stuff and get back into our normal rotation. But I think that's enough uh, housekeeping for now. I'd like to head into our shout-out department here to thank the folks who engaged with uh, social media posts from this little channel here. And uh, I tell you what, the Death of Professor X episode did... uh, Pretty, pretty, pretty good on social media. I'm not sure how much of that translated into listens, but uh, like I say, in this game, you take any and every win you can get. So, on Twitter, let's thank some folks here, including Wacky Bronze slash Silver Age comic book villains, Jeremiah, Chris Bailey, Jesse D. Young, Andrew in Belfast, the Between the Pages blog, Dave Schultz, Walt Nealon, Joe Crawford, Billy D., Ed Moore, Peter D., Kyle Marcus, Wormgiver, Ruben Ortega, Radioactive Dinosaur, Scott West, Ian McDonald, David Jackson, and Al Sedano. Over on Facebook, I want to thank Chris Bailey, Pat Sampson, Jesse DeYoung, Evan Bevins, Walt Nealand, Andrew Franklin, and Billy D. And on Instagram, I want to thank Mark Jagger, The Positive Fan, X-Men Revisited, Carl and Teddy Thompson, J Mama Jadang, Robotica Industries, The Mint Condition Podcast, X-Tropes, The Mutant Agenda, Chris Lozano, Alexa Rayabara, and Comic Book Curious. And of course, I've got to thank the folks that I can't thank enough. The patrons over at patreon.com slash xlapsed. Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Nealon, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, The Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse DeYoung, Damian, Peter McPherson, Mark Jagger, Herman, and Andrew in Belfast. Now let's head into contact information. If anybody out there would like to get a hold of me for any reason at all, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, Instagram at 90sXmen. You can send an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90sXmen. Of course, the entire audio archives are available at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You can find that on any podcast aggregation application. Last but not least, one more time, the Patreon is patreon.com slash xlapse. There you'll find some exclusive content, behind-the-scenes stuff, and some great folks to talk to. But uh, I think that'll do it for me for now. I'd like to thank you all so much for choosing to spend some of your day with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.